Now, there's another element that comes into that, which is where we're about to head. And that's another category that he has under consideration today. That's the I can fix it area. Must-haves, and I can fix it so that it is perfect. He will have nothing short of that because he is not short of that. And to be his bride, we must be absolutely perfect. So back to the question, what does he have to choose from? Let's go first of all to Galatians 5, and I want to begin this in verse 13. Galatians 5, verse 13. For brethren, you have been called to liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now we saw that trait in Rebecca last week, how she was of a ready mind, willing ready to serve in any way she could, even to a stranger. And we are not to give occasion to the flesh, because the flesh will lead us astray. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the law is summed up there. We have to be outgoing, giving, serving, loving, kind, gentle, supportive, encouraging. All those things that you desire, you have to do with your neighbor as well. There is no room for anything but that. That is the standard to which he holds us. But if you bite and devour one another... Take heed that you be not consumed one of another. That's what people tend to do, like chickens, pick at each other and pick at each other till they have each other bleeding, find fault wherever they can, and work on those faults until they pick someone apart. That is not acceptable, will not be acceptable in the bride of Christ. But that's human. That's the way we are. And that's why he says, don't be conformed to, or don't be like the world and the humanity around you, but be you transformed. Be you changed into something else, not biting and devouring. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Whatever an individual might desire for himself. For the lusts of the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. So we, being fleshly, have desires within us, no matter what category you want to name, which are against the Spirit of God. Everything human is contrary to God, put it that way. Everything about you is contrary to God. People say, well, I know people that are good Christians out in the world. No, you don't. You haven't met one yet. If we put ourselves ahead of anything that is of God, we have committed idolatry. First commandment right off the bat. Anytime we put ourselves ahead of God, it is idolatry. Like with the Sabbath. You decide you want to read something that is not of God, if you want to watch some TV program that you 
think might be, well, it's National Geographic, it's not sinful. It's not that. It says, don't put your foot on the Sabbath. Don't seek your own pleasures and your own desires. It's the spirit of the Sabbath that we so easily break, even though we might not be out working. But you can let your mind go to things that are not of God and not concentrate on worshiping Him and relaxing and growing spiritually on the Sabbath. And when you do that, you've committed idolatry. And none of those Christians, you know, out there don't even know what the Sabbath is, and they break it all the time. Unknowingly, deceived, you can't hold it against them in that sense, and God won't eternally, but they're not Christians. They're not following God's way. The truth sets you free, and they don't have the truth. They may be nice, they may be moral, they may be good people in terms of how good people can get, but they're still selfish. They still think of themselves, and even their religion is selfish. I'm righteous. And when we judge ourselves righteous, we are committing idolatry. Because none of us are righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. Do we grasp and understand that? There is not a righteous person, in terms of God's definition of righteousness, in this room. There is not one on earth. That's what the Bible says. None. The flesh affects us all. The, the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. There is automatic contention between a human being and the spirit we have and the spirit of God. It is an automatic thing. We, by our very nature, are contrary to God. We pull away the shoulder, we balk. How many times have people who have come to understand the truth tried to explain it to someone, anyone out in the world, even though they, though, even the ones they thought what might be the most receptive? Ones that you think, maybe this person is Christian enough, or good enough, or open-minded enough, and they turn immediately. They do not want to hear the truth. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Romans 8, 7, I think it is. By nature, it is enmity. And that's what Paul is saying here to the Galatians. They are contrary one to another. And these are contrary so that you cannot do the things that you would. Now, Paul was an apostle. He was perhaps as righteous as people are on this earth. And yet he said the things he wanted to do, he didn't do. The things he didn't want to do, he wound up doing. So if you want to throw rocks, I guess you can throw them at Paul. But on the other hand, he's going to be in the kingdom of God, so all your rock throwing isn't going to help you a bit. And people do throw rocks at Paul. Pauline theology and so on. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the penalty of the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Here's what human beings are. Normal, natural, born as human beings. This is the Spirit that is there. Uh, uh, Adultery, 
whether it be physical or spiritual, fornication, same way, uncleanness of every kind imaginable is natural to human beings. Uh, lawlessness. We want others to keep the law, but we don't particularly care if we can find a way to break it to our advantage about it. Idolatry, which we all commit, whether it's the self is idle or other things that we idolize. But the other things we idolize have to do with the self. Whatever we might want that might be ungodly is for self or selfishness, and therefore is idolatry as well. <clears throat> Covetousness is idolatry, he says in Colossians. Uh, and he goes on to name these things. Witchcraft, any form of following after Satan and demonism. Uh, he is the father of liars, and anyone who lies is of Satan. So we are of Satan and of the flesh, and Satan preys on the flesh. Uh, hatred is natural to man. It is not godly. God does not hate. He hates sin, but he does not hate sinners. We tend to hate sinners. That's human to put down or despise one another if we see sin in each other. It's not godly, but it's us. Uh, variance or uh, contempt is another word for it. Uh, strife. Human beings strive with one another. They strive at one another. Sedition or rebellion against uh, authority that is there, or government that either man or God has established that we have trouble with because we have trouble with anyone telling us what to do, uh, that's just human. We don't like it. We don't want anybody in charge, We, unless it's us. That's human. Uh, where was I here? Heresy, false belief, false doctrine, anything that's contrary to Scripture. And some people have their private heresies, things that might be disproved in Scripture, but that's the way they want to look at it, that's the way they see it, so therefore, that's the way it is in their mind. And such like. If he didn't cover it all, anything that comes with a broad sweep in this category is what human beings are, he says. Oh, I didn't even read about envyings and murders and drunkenness and revelings and such like. I just caught the uh, such like. But all these things. Uh, of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. A human being with the characteristics we just read and anything like that will not be in the kingdom of God. Do we grasp that? Christ does not have a want list. He has a must-have list. Anybody with any of the characteristics or way of thinking we just read about will not be in the kingdom of God. Do you know anybody, including self, who does not have some of those attitudes and characteristics? If not all the time, some of the time? You've never met one yet. Are we beginning to slowly already get the picture of what he has to work with down here to find a perfect bride? 
this could be better, but it's going to get worse. 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. If you are here with an open mind to the truths of God and His Word, then you were foolish. That's the category He calls. In some way, one way or another, you were a fool. Certainly spiritually a fool. You didn't understand God's way, His plan, His purpose, the process of salvation, or anything else. We were just fools out here in the world not knowing what's really going on. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, and if we don't have a true, deep reverence of God, then we are the opposite, which is a fool. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So I know that if I speak on these things and discuss them, I'm not missing anyone, I'm I'm getting everybody. Because he has chosen the weak things. He's chosen the foolish things to confound the wise, the weak things to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised has God chosen, and things which are not to bring to nothing things that are, that no flesh, no flesh, not anyone, should glory in his presence." We compare ourselves among ourselves, and it is not wise. It is foolish to glory, even to the sense of putting yourself as more righteous or better than or more qualified than anyone else. Comparing ourselves among ourselves is not wise, because compared to Christ, we are nothing. Christ, as a human being even said of himself, I am nothing. He had never sinned. He had never made a mistake. He had never allowed wrong thoughts to envelop his mind. And yet, as a human being, he had every desire, every wish, every want that a human being, any human being, had and was tempted in all points, like as we are. He never gave in, which is different than you and me. But it was there. And it was miserable. He lived his entire life here on the earth, fighting, fighting, every day, every minute, every second, to keep from being selfish, to keep from being lustful in any direction, to keep his Father in heaven on the pedestal, and not to allow any vanity or ego to come into his mind and create sin. But the impulses were there for all these things. And his desire to go there was as great as it is in us. Otherwise, we have no Savior. So, even though he never erred in any way, 
His spiritual value was counted as nothing, as a human being. Nothing. Of myself, I'm nothing. I can do nothing. It all had to come from the Father. So the very fact that he was human put him in a category that was ungodly. I would not want to live forever. Even if I never gave in to sin, I would not want to live forever with the impulse to sin. I'd rather die than be forever as I am. I don't want even the desire, the impulse, the inclination, the wish to do anything selfish or be selfish or sin or be against God in any way. Because that creates a battle, a daily battle to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. As a human being, there's not much here to work with. I won't turn to Romans 3.23, but it says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every human being, save Christ, came short of the glory of God by sinning. Romans 6.23 then, The wages of sin is death. So every human being has sinned, and we are worthy of and headed for death, of and by our human experience on this earth. None of us qualifies to live forever in the kingdom of God, because every one of us have broken the laws of God. It doesn't matter who's the worst sinner. It doesn't matter who's the blackest sheep. It doesn't matter how bad we've been. If we've sinned once, we will die eternally, unless something's done. Because one sin is all it takes to be worthy of death. That is why the Scripture also says it is appointed to all men once to die. Everybody, as a human being, is appointed to die. Can't get around it, can you? Ezekiel 16, I, I don't think I'll turn and go to that one, but that's the chapter which shows that Israel, whom Christ had chosen to be his bride and made a marriage covenant with in the Old Testament, uh, was sinful. And when he saw her and decided to make her his bride, she was covered in blood and sin and wretchedness. And he chose to clean her all up and to make her white and pure, to forgive her sins and prepare her to be his bride, his chosen people. But then she was unfaithful in every way. He gave her a standard, a law, a way of life laid down by Moses, and she did not live up to it. Would not, could not, didn't want to. Pull back the shoulder, set her feet, went the other way. She was human. She was wretched. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, The human heart is deceitful, <clears throat> excuse me, sound like a 13-year-old, is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? By nature, 
your mind is deceitful. If there's anything you might be caught up on or anything mentioned about you, you will deceive so easily to try to cover. We deceive ourselves about our true state. We would like to think of ourselves favorably. And whatever is required to make us think well of ourselves or our children or our mate or our acquaintances, our empirical self, if you will, we will make excuses and cover for ourselves, for our families, for our business associates, whatever we is, whatever you include with yourself, you will find excuses for and make them appear righteous no matter what they do. Hitler's mother and Jeff Lee Dahmer's mother and all of them found so much good in their children. Couldn't tell mama they were bad. Uh-uh, that didn't float because they came from mama and mama wanted a good impression of both herself and her children. And that's the way ancient Israel was. We are not just wicked, brethren. We are desperately wicked. Every last one of us. We are selfish to the core by nature. And that's why he says over and over, you have to love one another. We will put ourselves ahead of others. We will judge ourselves better than others. We can't compare ourselves to others. We can only compare ourselves to Christ. I've heard the expression through the years now and then, well, a minister is held to a higher standard than anyone else. That is an absolute falsehood. That is a total and utter lie. The ministry is not held to a higher standard than anyone else anywhere. Let's understand that. What is the standard I'm held to? Christ's perfection. What is the standard you're held to? Christ's perfection. There's no difference. No difference whatsoever in the standard that I must meet and the standard you must meet to be the bride of Christ. Okay? So how can we compare ourselves among ourselves? Now I will say this. God gives stricter judgment to the ministry and to teachers. They'll get double the judgment or the double the severity. But that's not the standard, see. That's the judgment. They'll be held more accountable or more responsible, but they're not held to a different standard. And there is a huge difference there. We all have to meet the must-have list of Christ to be the bride of Christ. Now let's begin to see a bit of an answer. I don't want to beat us down all day long. I, I know we know we're human, and we hear an awful lot from the Scriptures about human beings and what we are. So shall we all just go out and say, I'm bad, and pull the trigger? Well, that's not the answer either. Go to Jeremiah 3, verse 1. They say, if a man put away his wife, and she go from him, and according to Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament, uh, there could was allowance for divorce basically for any reason. 
uh, it wasn't according to God's original plan or purpose, and Christ in Matthew 19 made it very clear that he intended, and his purpose was, and the standard is that we marry once and stay married until death. And there was very, very little for any wiggle room there. Uh, Pornea was it, which can be proved to be fornication, it can be adultery, any kind of fraud that is perpetrated. Spiritual adultery, if you will. So, the lines became much, much stricter in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, this is the way it was. <clears throat> anyway, if he puts her away and she become another man's wife, shall he return to her again? Now, when he says, they say... Uh, Moses allowed that, and that's what Christ said in Matthew 19. Moses, for the hardness of your hearts, allowed that. And God passed on it for that time and place. So, they say, refers to Moses, but God allowed it. <clears throat> he did not hold them accountable in their carnal condition as human beings. He did not cause them to have to measure up to the standard of total holiness and righteousness that Christ demands of his bride. Because it was a physical covenant not yet raised to one of eternal life. Shall not that land be greatly polluted? How do you pass her back and forth? That's, that's pollution. But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Speaking of Israel again. She had gone and made covenants and deals and situations with the world around her, played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, says the Eternal. So he found her messed up, he cleaned her up, she got messed up again, and he says, in spite of all this, return to me again. Now, there's one of the must-haves that Christ has, is infinite patience and mercy and forgiveness that endures forever. So, he was willing to work with Israel, even such as she was. Now, let's make this closer to home a little bit in uh, the book of Ze Zephaniah. Here he's talking in chapter 1 about the financial crash that is bearing down upon us like a freight train right at the moment, in this moment in time. It's almost here. In fact, it's already kind of started, but it's, it hasn't hit in force yet. But he says in chapter 2, notice, Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O nation not desirable or unworthy, or maybe given grace. So, in the midst of the collapse of our economy and the world economy and the issuance of Satan's new world order. He directs the splinters, what's left of the church, to gather themselves together and be humble and serve God. And even says here, O nation undesirable are unworthy. So this draws it down to today. It draws it down to you and me. We still do not walk firmly in the Spirit. We still walk, to a great degree, in the desires of the flesh and selfishness. So, obviously, at this point in time, today, 
as the prophecies of Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah are right in front of us to be fulfilled, we are still unworthy and undesirable to God and to Christ as even a bride for Christ. That's where our status is on this day, January 10th, 2015. That's what he has to choose from. Now, I could make three or four or five sermons real easily on this line. I only began to even begin to touch the number of scriptures which show what human beings are as we are. But lest we get too discouraged, let's move to the next part of this. This is what he has to work with. You and me, those around us, the weak, the base. How will he obtain perfection? How will his must-have list be attained? He has to be married to someone of like kind, just like him. That is the standard, and it is a standard in which there is no compromise. You and I are willing to compromise with ourselves, with our conduct, and then justify in some way our thoughts or our conduct by the way someone else is, maybe, or whatever. But he will not accept that. He has to have perfection. Has to. Let's notice 2 Corinthians 11. I've referred to this one many times, where Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. And remember the background of Corinth. It was a very ungodly, immoral city, probably one of the worst societies on earth. I mean, we think of immoral places, let's say in our nation today, and you would automatically finger some places as worse than others. People talk about a sinful, ungodly, uh, they'll immediately maybe say San Francisco, or pick out another one that they think is exceedingly sinful, more so than perhaps the others. Well, Corinth was one of those cities. Now, I'm not knocking San Francisco, I'm just saying that might be the opinion that somebody might have because of the homosexuality and various things that are there. It's not confined to San Francisco, however. It is everywhere in this country, large and small town. And I'm not talking about that one sin. I'm talking about immorality and ungodliness in every form and fashion there is. But that's the kind of place that Corinth had a reputation for being, okay? So here's what he has to say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that would be Christ. He brought them the information which they could use to repent, to change their lives, and to therefore be presented as engaged to, espoused to Christ. 
that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Here's where we begin to get down to that I can fix it level. I must have perfection, and I don't see it anywhere in any person that has ever walked the face of the earth except Christ, and he wanted to sin. No human being except Christ has attained to the level it has to be. And yet, Paul spoke to these people and saying, my goal, my purpose is to present you as pure virgins to Christ. There must be some I can fix it in here somewhere. Got to be. Because as it is, so far with what we've covered today, he's going to be he's going to remain single. If he just started to choose today from us, he'd stay single. Okay? Let's go to Ephesians one. And I want to pick up verse 3 here. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Emmanuel, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He has taken the weak and the base, and he had in Ephesus as well, and has blessed them with spiritual blessings, with understanding, with knowledge that can lead to happiness and liberty and peace in God through Christ. According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, before humans were made, the Father and He who became the Son discussed the creation that they were going to create. And they agreed before the foundations of the earth that man would sin and that Christ would have to be sent to the earth as an atonement for sin. He knew what we would be, or they knew what we would be, where we would go, and what we would do, and what would be needed to save us from ourselves and from the devil. Had a plan in mind already. So, he, ahead of time, destined those who would become what we have become to move beyond that and to be acceptable to the kingdom of God someday. And how did he do so? He preordained us to the adoption of children by Emmanuel to himself. We were strange children. Different parentage. Remember what he said of Israel there in Ezekiel 16, verse 1 or 2? You don't look like my kids. You look like Hittites and Canaanites. You don't look like Abraham and Sarah. You look like the people out in the world. So he's adopted us as his children. According to himself, or according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, He wants to give us eternal life. 
That is his desire, his hope, and his goal. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. We can only be accepted through him as the beloved. In whom we have redemption through his blood. We are sold out to sin. We are sold out to the devil in his way by nature. And the only way we can be redeemed, saved, brought back, is through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. Any sin will kill you. It doesn't matter whether you sinned once or a hundred thousand times. It only takes one to kill you. So why do we have the kettle calling the pot black? I guess it's basically the way around in that story. We condemn each other as sinners. We point out each other's sins. We try to find fault with one another. I guess so we make, make him feel that we're better than somebody else. So human. So human. So ungodly. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So he's picked sinners out of the world, weak in base, and has shown an abounding toward us, desirous of giving us everything. Even as he told the disciples there in John 14 through 17, that he put them on the class as friends and he would, re- and he would share everything with them. So that was an abundance and willingness that he had. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, as humans out there in the world, even so-called Christians, we did not understand the mystery of salvation. We did not. I was in the Methodist church as a little guy up until eight years of age or somewhere around there. And they told me there that the law was done away with. I didn't have to obey the law. They weren't Christians. My grandmother would have been as judged probably as Christian as anybody ever. That door never opened that she wasn't there. And she wasn't a gossip. And she didn't hurt people. She was always there willing to help and so on. She didn't have a clue what Christianity was. She just had a human emotion and love for people. I won't fault her on that. But I know she was selfish. And I know she didn't understand even the purpose of mankind. And she believed in heaven and hell. I know she thought some of her own sons were going to hell. Despite mother's desire to send them to heaven. You know, that is religion's crazy. You go to all those Protestant religions and every week they tell you, boy, you better straighten up, you're going to hell. Straighten up how? There's no law. What am I supposed to do? But even though they preach them to hell every week, as soon as they die, they immediately turn around three days later and preach them to heaven. Mind-boggling. You're all going to hell until you die, and then you're going to heaven, every one of you. Weird. They don't understand Christianity whatsoever. He's made to us known the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He has purposed to Himself. He's down here opening minds, calling many. Now He's choosing few to work with toward perfection 
That's 144,000 who will comprise the bride of Christ. Purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So he has a plan to gather together a people in him that will qualify to be his bride. Go to Colossians 1. And to, well, let's start in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Emmanuel by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, uh, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae. Verse 3, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Emmanuel, praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ and of the love which you have to all the saints. So they have begun to have a godly love. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, not that you're going to heaven, but there's hope laid up in heaven with the Father and the Son for us. Where have you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is in all the world and bring forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth? See, there are a lot of people who misunderstand the grace of God. They don't think they have to obey the law and they just get grace and since they're under grace only, they have it made. No, that grace is, condition, is conditional. It has to be in truth. You've learned of Epaphus, our dear faithful servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I want to skip on down here. Uh, it talks about him being the head of the body in the church and so on in verse 19. Uh, but verse 22 is where I want to focus. In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. So his sacrifice, his blood shed, is there to cover all our sins, to forgive us, and to make it possible to prevent us as holy, unblameable. No one, when we reach that state, will be able to blame us for anything. Unreprovable. Nothing that can be reproved. Nothing to be corrected. Everything has been corrected. That's perfection, isn't it? If there's nothing to correct, that's perfection. That's what he's seeking in us. And he is saying here that he will be able to present us that way. Even as Paul told the Corinthians, I will present you as pure virgins, he's saying here he will present us unblameable in his sight. Let's go to Psalm 113. 
Psalm 113. Remember, he said he calls the weak in the base of the world to confound the wise. Notice what he says here in Psalm 113, beginning in verse 4. The Eternal is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Above the earth, above the heavens, He is higher than anything we can see through the greatest telescope. All the wonders that are out there, He supersedes and is high above. Who is like to the Eternal our God who dwells on high? Who is like Him? Who could be the bride of His Son? Who is like the Son? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? Now notice what he does. Who can be compared to God? Verse 7, He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the dunghill. I can fix it. It must be perfect, and it's not, but I can fix it. Out of the dust and out of the manure, he can fix it. That he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. Speaking of marriage in particular. He makes the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children Praise you, the Eternal. So he can take manure and dust and those that grovel in it, and therefore are part of it, and he can raise them up to the height of praise and give her children so that she can keep house and be the mother of the faithful. I can fix it. Chapter 45, verse 10. Hearken, O daughter, and consider. Listen, incline your ear. Forget also your own people and your father's house. Something has been offered us that is far greater than our human families on this earth. So shall the king greatly desire your beauty. Remember the story of Rebecca? How she was asked to leave her own house. She was asked to go to a far country and to be the bride of a man she had never met. The story is here. The king will greatly desire your beauty, for he is your Lord, and worship you him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat your favor. Those that were high and mighty, who were the wise of this world, will be worshiping at our feet, it says in another place. They'll be seeking our favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. King all glorious, king of kings and lord of lords, his daughter is glorious Within, from the inside out, her clothing is worked gold. She shall be brought to the king in raiment of needlework, 
The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought to you, to brought to Christ. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought, they shall enter into the king's palace. That's a prophecy. It's stating something that shall be done. So, no matter who we are, what we've been, good, bad, or indifferent, and I say good with a shaker of salt, whatever we've been, he can make us bride of the king all glorious. He can fix it. Isaiah 4. Again, getting down to prophecies of today in Isaiah 4. Verse 2, in that day, this, this is the time from verse 1 when seven women will be taking hold of one man, a time of worldwide trauma, a tri- time of the collapse in the new world order and Satan's times of the Gentiles, this era that we are on the cusp of entering in great uh, dismay. That's the time he's speaking of. In that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. So God is going to choose some to be worthy to escape all that is coming, as per Matthew 24, and take them to a place to finish His work and be a light to the world, a candle set on a hill, That is why he has scattered and destroyed the church today. It's so that certain ones might repent, give up their self-righteousness, and come to have the righteousness of Christ, as Isaiah 54 says they will at that time. He has done this deliberately. Read the book of Lamentations all over again. In order to humble us, to make us meek, to get rid of our self-righteousness, our judgment of each other, and come to love one another with wholeheartedness. That's why he's doing this to the church, our self-righteousness. Or I'm better than you. And I'm a Philadelphian, but you're a Laodicea. Or you're a sinner, and I'm more qualified than you. However you want to put it. Those that escape will be beautiful and glorious and excellent before him. And it shall come to pass that he is left in Zion, and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. So he's going to take some and begin to transform them as an example to the rest of the world of what his bride will be. Even as Rebecca had a lot of the qualities But she was not yet God, and she still had faults, just like all of us do. When the Eternal shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, that's the splendors, the churches, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereby, thereof, by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. We have been going through a very trying, burning, upset Splitting, dividing time. And God is not looking for dividers. He is looking for joiners. 
He is looking for peacemakers, not division makers. He will not have any division creating people there. It won't happen. He wants unity. He wants harmony. He hates division. And anyone who does anything to create it will not be counted worthy. No matter how worthy they think they are. Just won't be. So he can change things, and those who will not change will be in trouble. Romans, let's, uh, for a moment, let's turn to Romans, by the way, and let me uh, address that. Romans 6, and verse uh, 13. Romans 6, verse 13. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but yield yourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So God called us out of this world that is spiritually dead and is beginning to give us life through His truth. And He says, don't yield to the world and to the sin and to your nature, which is around you and in you, but yield to God. Now, He can fix it. He can make that which is human perfect. But we have to yield. If we draw back and don't yield to His Spirit, He's given us free moral agency and we can make the wrong decisions. Now, if we'll yield, He can make us a perfect bride of Christ. But we have to yield to that change. We have to yield to His work, to His hands, and be transformed. So it requires a willingness. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under unmerited pardon. And if we don't quit sinning, then we will not merit pardon at all, and will not be pardoned. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. How many Protestants read that verse? Know you not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. We have a choice in all this. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, his blood washed it away, you became the servants of righteousness. Therefore, don't go back into sin. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. We've described that already today. Well, what we are, the infirmity, the disease that is us by nature. For as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield yourselves, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. We've got to become righteous and holy according to His definition, not ours. And you have to yield. He cannot do His work with unyielding people. You can choose to die eternally. 
1 John 1. 1 John 1. I'm going to have to hurry through here. Yeah, I guess I can make it. 1 John 1, and here verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if we are cleansed from all unrighteousness, what do we then become? Righteous. The unrighteousness is gone. All that's left is righteousness. So he can cleanse it. He can purify it. Let's go to Ephesians 5 in that light. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He loves, loves those whom he has called in all ages. And above all others at this point, he's given himself for the church, the called out ones. Everyone else will have their opportunity in the millennium or the great white throne judgment, but right now he's calling out the bride. That's why he uses this context the way he does. That he might sanctify, set it aside, sanctify, and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So, we are going through a cleansing process. We repented of our sins and were baptized. Our sins were washed away, but we being human have continued to one degree or another to sin. And we have to be continually washed by the Word of God to be clean. That's why it's important we read the Bible, not just to put in our 30 minutes of self-righteous study but so that we can be truly cleansed. That's what reading the Bible is for. It purifies your thoughts. It puts your mind on higher things than what it would normally go to on its own. It's hard to gossip when you're reading Scripture. It's easy to close the Bible, forget what you read, and go do it. Verse 27, here's the purpose. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. He's not going to have, I want this. I'd like to have that in my bride. He is going to present it to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle, no sin, no unrighteousness, no wrinkles, or any such thing. Absolute perfection is the way he's going to present his bride to himself. Not my words. These are his words. But that it should be holy and without blemish. Absolute perfection is what he desires and will have. And if we do not reach absolute perfection, the highest standard of Christ, we will not be part of the bride of Christ. That almost sounds discouraging. Let's go to Philippians. Uh, chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 21. 
Philippians 3.21, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. He said, I will have a perfect bride without blemish, and I will change it. I will refashion it. I will fix it so that it can be a perfect bride and as a pure virgin when I marry her. Now there's your knight in shining armor. There's the one who can come and fix everything that is wrong with you and me. Has he done it yet? No. Is it a process? Yes. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. And here, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the eternal. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me, clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He is able to dress us as a bride, glorious to himself. Chapter 62, beginning in verse 1. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burns. God is not going to rest until He's transformed us. And the Gentiles shall see your righteousness, and all kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name. Read that in Revelation 3 which the mouth of the Eternal shall name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Eternal. The way we started out today, we didn't sound like a crown of glory. But that's what he's working on, and that's what he's going to achieve. And a royal diadem in the hand of your God. This is a prophecy. This is going to happen. You shall no more be termed forsaken, neither shall your land any more be desolate, and you're, you'll be called uh, Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, for the eternal delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So he demands perfection in his bride, and he's going to have one. He's going to make one. He's going to transform us into one. If we will yield to Him, that's where we are headed. Jeremiah 17. And I want verse 12 here. Jeremiah 17, verse 12. Just one verse. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. He has the very best in mind for us. A glorious high throne will reign as kings and priests with him on this earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. Now, 
since we are human, even as Christ was human, and even though He never gave in and never sinned, He fell short of the glory of God as a human being simply because of the nature of man that was in Him. Now, don't think I'm saying there was something wrong with Christ. I'm not. There was nothing wrong with Him. But He was human, made in the likeness of humanity. And He had every desire to sin that you and I have ever had. And that is not a good way to live. And He was very, very happy when that time was done and He could go again to the Father after all that He went through and be accepted and changed back into spirit. Because being flesh and being spirit are incomparable. Can't compare them in any way. 1 Corinthians 15, we read, I show you a mystery, verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. We can only go so far toward perfection. We are chained as human beings to what we are. Now, He can begin the transformation in this life by revealing the truth to us, humbling us, bringing us to repentance, having us start walking in the Spirit instead of the flesh, which is a daily, momentary battle every day for you and me. And if we don't recognize that battle every day, and we don't recognize our very own nature, then we still don't understand God and the plan of salvation and humanity. If you think you're good, you don't know nothing yet, truly, according to Scripture. So it's going to come down to the point that the changes we make, however horribly slowly as human beings on this earth, then it is hard to make them. It's going to be done in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. We'll not have this corrupt nature, this desire to sin, the temptations that we have anymore. They'll be gone. We will be absolutely holy and righteous. We will not have any desire for anything but glory and righteousness and holiness. Our mind will not be subject to anything on this earth or to Satan whatsoever. We'll be perfect. Let's finish this up in Revelation 21. Revelation 21. He will be all-glorious, all successful when he's done. 
Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more salt water, according to Ezekiel. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. They won't be subject to the human troubles we have today. He'll wipe away all tears from their eyes. There'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, or any pain, for the former things are passed away. When we're glorified, as per 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, this humanity will go away. We won't be this way anymore. He said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega. In verse 6, I will give to him that is thirst, thirsty of the fountain of the water of life freely. Down in verse 9 now, it talks about right after the seven last plagues. Here's your time element. He said, come here, I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So this is a prophecy. This is going to happen. 144,000, Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 talk about it. How 144,000 will be prepared to be the bride of Christ. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven, having the glory of God and her light, the bride, her light, was like a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. No imperfections, no blemishes, clear as crystal will be the bride of Christ. Everything we've discussed, he must have. He must have perfection. First Corinthians 15, I didn't read that part, says, Kind begets kind. And if he is to be married, he has to have son, someone of absolute like kind. Absolute perfection as he is perfect. And through an arduous process working with us now, he's moving us toward that. And if he sees the transformation in our minds the desire to be like Him, the effort that we put forth to overcome and to grow in that direction, then He is, in the first resurrection, going to absolutely, positively, totally change us from flesh to spirit. And at absolute, total perfection. That's His standard. That's what He must have. And he can fix it so it is that way. What a glorious, and I say that advisedly, opportunity we have to be the bride of Christ.